This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today. Off Scripts Time Capsule. Rating and ranking the years that have shaped us. I'm Robbie Greenfield, and alongside me is Chris McCarty and Sona Rapani. Working our way through the years, we'll highlight world events, cultural achievements, and the stories that have been forgotten. We're going to start with the wacky stories, as we usually do. And this story, uh, I didn't know what to make of it, but here's the headline for you. Last two speakers of ancient language not talking to each other. (laughs) This is in The Guardian, no less that I happen to find this. Exactly. It's describing the language of Ayapaneco, which has been spoken in the area that's now known as Mexico for centuries. And you talk about what this language has survived over the course of centuries. I mean, wars, revolutions famines, floods, and finally it reached the point where they realized there were only two people left. In 2011, it made headlines that there were only two people left who could speak this language fluently. And guess what? They absolutely refused to talk to each other. (laughs) Their names were Manuel Segovia, who was 75 at the time, Isidro Velazquez, who was 69 at the time. They only live about 500 meters apart in their village of Ayapa. And it's unclear. Neither of them was really willing to fess up as to what had happened about why there was clearly some level of hostility that they were unwilling Mm. to speak to each other. They were willing to see a language die rather than actually, you know, mend fences. Exactly. Rather than having to see each other face to face and have a conversation. Now, this upset some linguists and, you know, academics because one of them had come through to say they don't have a lot in common. Um, This particular linguist, his name was Daniel Suslek, wanted to produce a dictionary of Ayapaneco basically to save the language. But he said one of them was a little prickly and the other one was more stoic and didn't like to leave his house. So basically, this language's existence was left down to these two men who just couldn't really be bothered. I mean, at that point, if they can't be bothered and there's only two of them that speak (laughs) Let it go. Why why save it? I mean, just let it go. The weird thing about this story is that in 2014, a couple years later after this story came out, Vodafone got involved and they ran a marketing campaign to save this dying language. So you have this emotional video. It's called Firsts. And for some reason, they wanted to help revive this language of Ayapaneco. And they have this dramatic video where they say, you know, there's only two people left who speak this language. And they introduce you to them, but they're not speaking to each other. <laughs> we wanted to get involved to save it, basically. Well, give them and mobile they, they build like a school facility. They help a dictionary get made. They bring them together so that they can actually start teaching some kids and adults who want to learn the language. The first time I ever heard them speak together in Ayapaneco was at the fiesta. I think it's nice that Manuel and Isidro are trying to teach the kids. Well, the children are the future for this language. I'm sorry, I, just, I don't so have. Bizarre, isn't it? I don't have that sentimentality for a language that I would have for, say, if it was the last rhino. What? I mean, it's what? a language. It will still be there in textbooks. Yeah. Latin is not spoken anymore, but we still have to study it at school. Well, I think that's the point: is it wasn't there in textbooks. Right. There was no record of it. That's why they wanted to make a dictionary. And Vodafone was actually having people adopt words from the Ayapaneco language. It potentially was all a big publicity stunt. I yeah. mean, who, who really knows there? Listen, if the fellas involved strange. don't care about it, yeah. I'm sorry. Just just let it go. But where are we going next with the stories? Well, 2011, believe it or not, was the year of planking. Can you believe this was 10 years ago? Oh, my goodness me. Planking. No, I can't. You, you remember this. The one I really remember is the Ice Bucket Challenge. I don't know which year that was, but I think that was far more recent. Was it? Was it? I don't know. 
So planking In my memory, people. It is. To be fair, if you'd asked me when planking was, I would have guessed like six or seven years ago. But no, it was ten years ago. And this apparently emerged from an Australian game called the Lying Down Game. And of course, for people that don't recall this specific fad, it was just people literally acting like a plank. They would lie somewhere, usually somewhere interesting, face down, arms to the side, feet straight out, acting as if they were a wooden plank. And people started to get a bit creative with this, trying to do this in different places. So they could basically take a photo and post it on their social media. Do you think enough time has elapsed that we could restart this craze? No. And people wouldn't notice? No. Ten years is definitely not (laughs) enough time. Yeah. Absolutely not. You can bring this back. Imagine if you and me just posted doing planks tomorrow. Just Just ten years too late. Sounds sounds like us, to be fair. (laughs) Just a little bit off trend. Just slightly. Um, Yeah. There were all sorts of places. I mean, somebody even died doing this. What? Yeah. People would get really risky with this. Um, Now, here Here's the thing. Planking, though, became old really quickly. It had its moment in the sun. And then people moved on on to things like owling, which is exactly what it sounds. At one point, it was called the new planking. And it was essentially just crouching like an owl in different interesting spots. There was also horsemaning, which I didn't know what this was. But this was actually a trend from the 1920s that came back in 2011. And essentially, it was derived from the headless horseman from the legend of Sleepy Hollow, people would pose in a way that would look like they were beheaded and that the head was next to them. So imagine somebody's lying down flat, Rob, okay? Right. Their head is out of view. They're kind of tilted at an angle where you, you cut off at their collarbone. Yeah. Then their friend's head is popped up next to them in the photo. Okay. Okay. So, this is horse maining, is it? Horse maining. Horse maining. Uh, I, yeah. Horse maining. I didn't... This, all of these passed me by, in all honesty. You didn't plank? No, I, you didn't no, post no. that to social media? I'm so surprised. No, I did not. Shocker. I was forced to. Planks were a favorite when we did the training for Fighting Fit. That's that a was, very different kind of plank. Is it? Yeah. But it's the same thing, isn't it? It's the same idea. Yeah. Well, you're holding yourself to strengthen your core on your either your hands oh, or your elbows. What it, I thought that's what no, it was all about. We're talking about literally face down. Like your face, if I was planking on this table right now, my nose would be on the table and right. my, my arms would be to my side. This whole trend passed me by. There would be no exercise involved in this. It was not core strengthening. I would be lying flat. Right. right. Oh, I thought this was fitness gurus showing off about how, how long they could plank for. No. Maybe that's the trend we need to stop. <laughs> yeah. That could be the trend. I'm pretty sure somebody more suitable than us has already started <laughs> such a thing. But nice try. <laughs> All right. I want to get to one more little quirky story. And this headline, and this was a real police case from 2011. Banana at large after after fight with gorilla. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> okay. This is all because a prankster who was wearing a banana costume decided to tackle a gorilla mascot of a cell phone store yeah. in the U.S. If it was Verizon. a real gorilla, it would have come off very differently. <laughs> let me tell you that. Listen, Verizon Wireless, for some reason, had a gorilla mascot. Maybe they still do. I don't know. This was in Ohio in the U.S. And he's outside of the store doing his thing when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a banana runs out, tackles him to the floor, takes him down, and then runs off with his buddies, with four of his buddies. Now, the guy who was the boss of the store said it was like a Spartan in 300 or something, (laughs) except he was a banana. (laughs) Oh, Which is just a great way to describe it. Of course, the banana split before the cops arrived. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Time capsule just hit a new low there. <laughs> 
police, police, were, police were unable to locate the banana. Oh, my goodness me. So he got away with it scot-free. Yep. Did he? Gave the police the slip. Uh, of course he did. <laughs> All right, then. Let's get on to the movies of tw- uh, 2011, 10 years ago. And you were going through them. You were trawling through them earlier. Not, not overly impressed, were you? Yeah, I'm not going to lie. It was a little bit of a rough year to find a favorite, I felt. Did you feel the same? I did. I did. I've got one clear favorite. Right. But in all honesty, I would have struggled were this movie not of that year. Exactly. Well, this wouldn't have necessarily been your choice if it was in another year with slightly better selection. Uh, probably not, no. Yeah. But um, let's start with it. It's Moneyball. Your goal shouldn't be to buy players. Your goal should be to buy wins. And in order to buy wins, you need to buy runs. Who are you? I'm Peter Brand. First job in baseball? It's my first job anywhere. We're going to shake things up. Why don't you walk me through the board? I believe there's a championship team that we could afford because everyone else undervalues them, like an island of misfit toys. Yeah, Moneyball. It, it was, um, I mean, a great sports movie. Yeah. One of the best sports movies. And, and it was... Based off of true events. Based fact. off of true events. The Oakland A's 2002 season in uh, Major League Baseball where they compiled a team uh, which was stat-based, stat-driven as opposed to kind of star player-based. They yeah. lost all their star players. They were, they were stuck in this rut where they would have a good season, all of their best players would be poached, and then they'd need to sort of start trying to re-recruit for them but Brad Pitt's character, Billy Bean, comes in and he hires... Peter Brand, played by Jonah Hill, and those two have this weird chemistry. They do. Brad and jo- Pitt and I Jonah Hill. I have to Hill. say, Jonah Hill, at the time when you saw him in this movie, I feel like we were only used to seeing him in goofy comedies. Yes. I mean, since then, we've seen him in things like Wolf of Wall Street, where you kind of see his acting chops. But I think prior to this, he was always in these, like, a certain genre of film about just being a bit spaced out. Yeah, but he was great for this because he was really sort of waspish in this. He was just kind of like, you know, he was very, he was a nerd. I mean, he was a sports nerd and he he was kind of made to play this role. Now, this movie, you may not know this, was originally going to be very different. It was actually Steven Soderbergh who had originally started with this film. And what he did was he was making, he was shooting interviews with actual baseball players from that time. He wanted real baseball players to be in the movie so that it would be a bit more experimental rather than typical theatrical movie, it would be a little bit more docu-like right. in the sense of the real players would play themselves, almost as like a remake of this happening. Okay. Now, so he gets pretty far along in this process. The production house pulls this project just a couple days before filming, and that's when they decided to go with a guy called Bennett Miller, who then made it more of a traditional kind of movie, and the Aaron Sorkin kind of dramatic script right. oh, that, I think that I'm, came in. I'm glad they did, because yeah. it was a great film. Yeah, and I'm going to get to my choice, but as I was looking through the movies of this particular year, I realized it was one of those years that was dominated by franchises and sequels, which I yeah. know is your absolute fave, Rob. Yeah, you no, love that, I, don't listen, you? Listen, I know. You had Transformers, Dark, Dark, of the, Dark Side of the Moon, Pirates of the Caribbean, On Stranger Tides, The Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn Part 1, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, The Hangover Part 2, including uh, included with a number of other sequels, were all kind of the top highest grossing films of the year. Hollywood got lazy, I'm telling you. It happened around about 2004-05. Everything started to just splurge into this remake, sequel, reboot. It's gotten worse. But even in that, you know, in the past couple of years that we've looked at, there have been some bright spots of original films. 
Holmes. There have. I feel like we did have one a couple of years ago. Oh, no, there, there was. To. 2008, I believe, was yeah. a very good year. But, yeah, no, there have been. But I think, you know, there's a reason that 1999 gets called the last great year of American cinema. Right. Original concepts, basically, that we just don't seem to see as much anymore. But my choice is going to be one of those franchises. But well, for I suppose, good reason. Yeah, I agree with that. For a good reason, okay? This was the highest grossing film of this particular year. It was, of course, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Now, all I will say about the Harry Potter films, which I have seen... Okay. I've not read the books. I have seen the have films. Have you fallen asleep through any... Have you stayed awake, I should say, through any of them? I have, yes. Okay. I felt like they got a little bit serious and a bit dark towards the end. That's there how was, it goes with the books, too. Yeah, there was a real innocence and a real... And I, I mean, I use this word, obviously, with a, a pun intended. There was yeah. a magic to the first couple of films. There was genuine kind of wonder, and, and there was that sort of childlike kind of quality to them. They just got... They started to get a bit serious. They felt like more like James Bond films films by the end. But see, in a way you had to. I remember growing up reading the books, right? And you read that very first one, and depending on what age you are, it is a bit childish. And then you kind of are growing up with the books because she's releasing one a year or one every two years or whatever it was, and your age is progressing. So right. the need for something kind of sophisticated, you kind of progress with the books. This says a lot for my mental age, doesn't yeah. it? That I'm still <laughs> anchoring just, for... This was one of those in which I thought the films were as good as the books, and I thought the books were brilliant, so it's quite hard to do that. And of course, this was the final film in that Harry Potter franchise, and it broke domestic and international box office records, as you would expect. Um, and what's funny is it wasn't actually... Usually you see the last film of a franchise is the longest, right? This was actually the shortest in the whole franchise. It was only 130 minutes. Only. Only. I say. But yeah, um, yeah one of the scenes that Ralph Fiennes played Voldemort... Um, and he did a bit of a victory speech. And sorry, I'm speaking to people who are familiar with Harry Potter here, but just bear with me for a moment. Victory speech at Hogwarts. OK, and it turns out he was quite a terrifying figure in Voldemort. I mean, they really picked somebody who could live and breathe in yeah. this role of somebody who was meant to be truly evil. And one thing that he did that kept the actors on the toe on their toes is he just kept improvising and picking out random characters that he would pick on. So every take that they would do, he would do something kind of different. And everybody was just a bit put off by it and a little bit kind of, you know, on the edge of their, on exactly. the edge of their seat a little bit. Wow. You know, one of the people who was there at the time said in this giant confrontation, Ralph was let loose. He was utterly terrifying. <laughs> he kept everyone on their toes by constantly changing what he said between takes. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, he would just kind of mix things up. He's a great actor. He's Ralph Fiennes. Yeah. Let's move on to some of the other notable movies from this year. Drive of... Ryan Reynolds. Ryan, no, Gosling. Ryan Gosling. If I drive for you, you give me a time and a place. I give you a five minute window. Anything happens in that five minutes and I'm yours no matter what. I don't sit in while you're running it down. I don't carry a gun. I drive. 
I remember watching this film, but I don't really remember it. Yeah, I mean, which... it got great reviews at the time. So it tells the story of a Hollywood stunt driver who moonlights as a getaway driver. You might have picked that up on the trailer um, for different nefarious activities. Now, he doesn't really want to take on more work, but of course, there's a situation that forces him into one last gig. Now, here's the thing. I always thought this was quite a blockbuster in itself, but it turns out it was going to be a big budget blockbuster when they had Hugh Jackman starring in it. Then when Hugh Jackman wasn't able to do the movie and he dropped out, they decided to make it much smaller scale. And that's why it got a little bit more, it felt a bit more indie than I yeah. think Blockbuster. Right. As people were, it's, it's, some people, moviegoers, in fact, who had seen the trailer, thought they were going to get that big action movie. When they got a bit of a crime drama... They were so upset by it that one woman tried to sue the producers. Really? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it was one of those things that just instantly gets dismissed. But the idea that somebody would even attempt that yeah. is ludicrous, of course. It's a film, for goodness sake. Now, here is perhaps one of my other top movies from 2011. I wonder if you remember this. J. Edgar, starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Imagine if every citizen in this country were uniquely identifiable by the pattern on their fingers. Imagine how quickly we could find them if they committed a crime. You remember that file we created on his wife? Mrs. Roosevelt. Will you make a copy for me, please? Is that legal? Sometimes you need to bend the rules a little in order to keep your country safe. Now, this should be on your list of films to see should from it? Time Capsule. It is. I remember watching it. And it's just one. Of, it is a bit of a slow burn, but it's a biopic of J. Edgar Hoover, who was the founder, essentially, the brains behind the FBI when it first started. And he was just absolutely dominant in that role for decades, had kind of one of those characters that has absolute power. And you kind of see how it starts and how it gets a bit you know, changes course, becomes a bit power hungry. It all goes a bit different with time. And Leonardo DiCaprio, of course, plays him. And he worked with the director, Clint Eastwood, for this one. They had a bit of a fallout during the shooting. Leo had requested a retake. Clint called it a wrap. I actually read that Clint Eastwood, you hear about multiple takes for one shot or one scene. He's the opposite. Apparently, he just wants to move it on as quickly as possible. So whenever he can do it in one take, he will. Which really? is quite unheard of when you think of directors. Yes, to the very point much that so. one of the actors in this movie had said he still had his script in hand. He didn't realize they were filming it. And he's like, ah, don't worry, I'll edit it out. It was great. That's Clint's style. <laughs> yeah, apparently. I didn't oh, know this. What a legend. Um, yeah, so they didn't get on. They were a bit frosty towards each other for the rest of the wow, film. Wow. Okay. Because of that one incident. But yeah, so there was a lot of people then that sort of, as with any biopic, people that would fact check certain details about what's been turned into Hollywood style versus what was actually factual. One thing that people pointed out is that Hoover was actually a tremendous misogynist. He was very concerned about how agents should look. He actually fired all the female agents and banned the hiring of female agents as well. Wow. Mm. Oh, my goodness me. That's a film I've got to look up. That never came across my radar, I don't think. Yeah. Jay Edgar. Yeah, I feel like because of Leo DiCaprio, it was a bit of a big one. Yeah. I think I okay. saw it in the cinema. But one last one for you, and it's a completely different tone from what we've been talking about. But this was a, a massive film for this year. I'm engaged. Oh, my God. He asked me last night. <laughs> so will you... Be my maid of honor? Of course I will. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. No, just whatever. Throw the bachelorette party. Yeah. The shower and... Oh, my God. What are we doing for the bachelorette party? Vegas it is. Excuse me, ma'am? Please return to your seat. She's not great at flying. I have something that might help you relax. I'm ready to party! Oh, yeah.
That's not one on my list, I'm afraid. <laughs> People seem to love this film. It was not one of my favorites. Really? I was encouraged by the idea, because you kind of... The buddy comedy, you typically see men in that role, yes. I feel like. Well, so the to Hangover have this, was the year before, wasn't right, it? This was kind of the female Hangover, wasn't it? Right. There was something like a similar style to it. The reason this movie happened was because Kristen Wiig who stars in this film, was in a, in a film called Knocked Up with director Judd Apatow. Now, he loved her improv skills so much that he basically just gave her carte blanche and said, listen, I want you to do your, I want you to be the center stage of a movie and I want you to write it as well. So that's how it came to be. There is one scene that this movie is perhaps the most well known for. It's a bit, it's the gross scene. Okay. But it just it succumbs to that really gross humor. There's a lot of vomiting. Pretty much every cast member is vomiting at one point. And uh, Kristen Wiig actually hated this scene. She said, "You know what? I she really wasn't a fan. It was Judd Apatow who insisted that this had to get thrown in there." So he, she said, "He just likes that kind of gross yeah, out humor. Yeah, yeah, that kind of slapstick kind of thing." Yeah, it's not been the strongest year. I'm not going to lie. For yeah, films. film wasn't the best. I mean, there were a few other notable men- men- uh, mentions that we won't necessarily play the clips for, but Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy was among them. Tree of Life. You remember that Brad Pitt movie? I never did see it. No, but I, I remember. See the, that. I remember the sort of poster for that one. And so, then, yeah. as you say, a lot of sequels, lot of sequels Transformers, well. um, the Twilight Saga. We're not going to go there. But that being said. There was a massive, a monumental launch in the world of television in uh, 2011. This was the year that, well, it was a phenomenon uh, when, it made, when it came out and it made its debut. It was this. You do have a choice. And you've made Soon you will cross the narrow sea and take back your father's throne. I want to go home. We go home with an army. You're just a soldier, aren't you? Take your orders and you carry on. I was also trained to kill my enemies, Your Grace. As was I. Does family mean nothing to you? These people will do anything, and that is why we have to stop them. We've got seven kingdoms to rule. One king, seven kingdoms. Do you think honour keeps them in line? Do you think it's honour that's keeping the peace? It's fear. Fear and blood. Back when Game of Thrones was really good. I was so. going to say, I, thought, I felt like we got all eight seasons in that little clip. Yeah, it was a long clip. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it was. It came out season one. Sean Bean was the star of it in that first season. And it was a brilliant show. Absolutely it, it brilliant. Was just so, I mean, I watched season one. I never watched any of the rest of it. But I watched season one and it did kind of just suck you in and blow you away. But for me, it was how just... How did you give up on it? Because I was hooked by the end of season one. It was too dark. One. You know how you talked about Mayor of Easttown being just too bleak to be able to enjoy. Right. I think at some point I felt that way. It was obviously a dramatic You should give it another chance. Give season two a chance because the dialogue and just the writing and just the scenes and the the, the set pieces are incredible. And just the setting as well. Yeah, I was a massive fan of it until about season five when it started to kind of veer away from the the source material. Mm. Um, I've got a few facts for you. Uh, George R.R. Martin, of course, the author, he had a cameo in the original episode where he was actually a guest at the wedding of Carl Drogo and Daenerys. But when the role of Daenerys was recast, the scene had to be scrapped, and he later lobbied for a less glamorous, more memorable role, a severed head on a stake. 
but according to Martin, they're very expensive to make. So unless he provided his own, he didn't get to be a severed head. And uh, Benioff and Weiss offered him the opportunity. Benioff and Weiss were the show writers to make a cameo in season eight, but he was already working on his new book, his final book, and couldn't do it. Now this is an amazing story because Kit Harrington, who played John Snow, actually turned up to his audition sporting an injury. Take a listen. I'd been in a fight the night before. I'd got in this fight with this guy in McDonald's. I went into the McDonald's and with this girl I was sort of dating at the time. And it was late at night and there was no seats. Like asked this um this guy and this girl he was with if we could sit on the same table as them and they said yes we sat down and quite quickly he started being really rude to the girl I was with call, you know, calling her names and we were like we'll just finish our food we don't want any trouble and then, and then go and then he called her something like an ugly pig or something worse and I got up and said no 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 you can't you can't call her that get up so I called him up for a fight which I'd never done before and of course he'd been sat down the whole time so we got up and he just kept going <laughs> and I just <laughs> realised that I had to at that point throw the first punch Otherwise, I looked like a complete wimp, and I got battered. So then I went to the Jon Snow audition with a black eye, which I think that man who punched me in the face may have helped me get the job. So if you're watching, thank you. That is a crazy story with the idea, first of all, of Kit Harrington hanging out in a McDonald's and some random just like <laughs> yeah. having a go at them for no reason. I know, and that's kind of what helped him get the part of Jon wow. Snow. Sonal Rapani, your nomination for best song. This was a tough year to choose because it was a big year for Rihanna. We found love in a hopeless place 10 years ago. Sure. But I went for this one. Psycho, I'm Libo, the go Michael. Take your pick, Jackson, Tyson, Jordan. This is Kanye and Jay-Z yeah, when they teaming did, up. They did a whole album together, and it was just a mood. You know, they were clearly just having a good time. Even if you remember the video for this particular song, they're just kind of hanging out in cars, doing wheelies and donuts and stuff. And they're just, you can tell they're having a great time. And I, this just reminds me of being at a house party and just dancing Fair at like 2 in the morning, jumping around, having a good time. Yeah, I did. I remember hearing this song an awful lot 10 years ago, that's what's for your, sure. What's your choice? I, you know what? I was putting it together. I didn't actually... I need to have a little think about this. I'll have a think. But this was Pitchforks. This is one of the sites we've been leaning on for this feature a lot. This was their number one track of 2011. M83, Midnight City. M83 is a French electronic musician, Anthony Gonzalez. And... Um, this song was inspired by uh, the band that she was founded in 2001. The song was inspired by his observations of downtown L.A. Oh, cool. at night. Um, and it made its way onto all sorts of TV shows. It was on Made in Chelsea. It was in BBC London's Olympic Games coverage. And it actually featured on the Grand Theft Auto video game series as well. It's one of those songs that just doesn't get old. Like, yeah. you can still pop it on a playlist today. Well, Pitchfork said about it, you can listen to it a ridiculous number of times yeah. without needing to know what he's singing about. <laughs> um, and I think that's one of those classic things. You never quite know. The other song that was getting a lot of airtime back in 2011 was this. Swedish indie singer-songwriter Lee Lique Timotej Zakritsen. Try saying that fast. Under I'm, the stage I'm name Lique that, Lee. I'm impressed that you even got it slowly. But this is, again, one of those epic songs. Takes me back to, like, Mykonos 2012. Yeah. 
You know, it was everywhere. This was a, a, a good sand dance favorite as well. Yeah. Back in the day here in the UAE. And um, it was topping the singles charts in several European countries, including Belgium and Romania. Now, I'm playing this song more really for our absent friend than for anyone else. Because speaking of Romania, well, the country also spawned one of the biggest dance hits of the summer. Familiar with this one, so? Of course I am. I'm actually digging all of these songs. Yeah. Mr. Saxa Beat, which clearly would have been Chris's pick. There's of no course. doubt whatsoever. Yeah, at some brunch somewhere with a live saxophone player, right? That's it. This won the 2011 Romania Music Award for Best Song. All right. Um, I'm, I'm not going to comment on that. I'm sure it was the best song in <laughs> Romania. Uh, right then, let's quickly move it on. There's a few more still to get through. Um, the Black Keys were back in fine form this year. They released another album. They'd released, I think the previous year, they'd released an album called Brothers. They were back in form. They were everywhere, really, in pop culture. And it was an album called El Camino. And this is Little Black Submarines. I should have seen it grow, but everybody knows that a broken heart Beautiful. Yeah, and then it just kicks in. Listen. They recorded this with producer Brian Danger Mouse Burton. <laughs> it's it's going to be really tough to have a nickname like Danger Mouse now, when your name is Brian Burton. Now, listen, I think Danger Mouse, if you have that nickname, you just own it. Yeah, well, clearly he yeah, did. Yeah. Uh, and it actually began as a demo, this song, um, where there was supposed to be an acoustic version and then a very kind of loud rock version. And they, they felt that neither of the two versions were working, so they fused them, like I we've just heard. It. And then this one, I really like this album. Um, it's by a band, an English synth-pop band called Metronomy. And this album, The English Riviera, if you've never heard it, it's well worth a listen. This is one of the top tracks from it. a group formed by Joseph Mount in the English Riviera region of southwest England. I didn't know that, that I don't such know a place was, does exist. I didn't know there was an English Riviera. Yeah, but okay. it's a really, it's very addictive, like it's a very catchy beats in this in this whole album. This is like, I can't believe this has passed me by. This yeah, is totally you, the kind of sound I love. Yeah, you need to check it out. Metronomy, it's called uh, the English Riviera. And um, it was uh, it was recorded in southwest England. He explained the band's name to the sun. He said it was the brain of a 17-year-old who liked Aphex Twin and Square Pusher. I thought it would be cool to combine the word metronome with astronomy. And there cool. you have it. Uh, definitely it. one to, to take a listen to. It was also the year of Adele. We'll finish with that because, I mean, she was absolutely everywhere. It was her second album, 21. It found critical acclaim, mainstream success. And this is the first single from it. Yeah, I do. I like how different it is from everything else she's done. I love Adele, but I feel like so many of her songs have that kind of slow ballady thing going. Yeah. And I loved how this one was a bit different. Also, yeah, apparently a revenge song. Apparently so. Yeah. She said, um, she said people will hear it and go, wow, she ain't mucking around. 
No, she clearly what ain't. She, what she said. But that's kind of a very eclectic year of music, 2011. And, uh, yeah, a nice place to finish, certainly from a musical perspective. Let's talk sports 2011 so. I mean, how did it stack up 2011? Would you call it a vintage year I for would sport? say it was really good, actually. Mm. It was really good. And there's only one place to start with it. The 2011 ICC Cricket World Cup was the 10th edition of the tournament. It was played in India, Sri Lanka, and for the first time, Bangladesh. And India won the tournament, defeating Sri Lanka by six wickets in the final at the Wankhede Stadium in Mumbai, thus becoming the first country to win the Cricket World Cup final on home soil. It was the second time they'd won the event after their maiden victory in 1983. Dodi finishes off in style. A magnificent strike into the crowd. India lift the World Cup. After 28 years, the parties start in the dressing room and it's a, an Indian captain who's been absolutely magnificent in the night of the final. That high-energy music was added after <laughs> the fact. It wasn't playing out while they were commentating live. But I can tell you, it's really difficult to find highlights of cricket online. Yeah. It's much harder than other sports. It uh, must be very rights-protected. Yeah, perhaps. But that's one of those sporting moments that actually, you know where you remember where you were when you watched it? Really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you have a little family gathering? Big, no, it was a big table out at some bar down at Munzel Hotel. Really? Yeah. Was it a Rapani? And I remember, no, it was huge. There were like, at the time, we were obviously allowed to have like 30 people on a table. And it was just, it just erupted yeah. in that moment. Uh, India's Yuvraj Singh was, was declared the man of the tournament. But it was, it was really all about MS Dhoni. Mm. He was the talisman for the team. He, he hit the winning six. That would seal victory. And this was the first time in World Cup history that two Asian teams had appeared in the final. And it was also the first time that uh, since 1992 that the final did not feature Australia. Hmm. which gives you an idea of how dominant they were in the event. Now, it's not often that horse racing gets a mention. In fact, I think this might be the first time in the entire run of the time capsule that we're giving horse racing its due. I think that sounds about right. But that being said, this was the year that the greatest racehorse of modern times made his appearance during the flat racing season in England. And 2011 was the year of Frankel. Frankel. He was the one-mile sensation in all of the Blue Ribbon events. He retired unbeaten, and I love this commentary. Here he is winning the Guineas, which is a famous race in the UK um, for uh, geldings, young young horses starting out in their career. Uh, He won it by an absolute country mile in a performance that most experts believe is the greatest in the history of the race. But at halfway, Frankel is almost 10 lengths clear. They're heading then down towards the bushes now. Frankel continues to be in a massive lead to Casamento in second place and then rerouted behind that is Parfoot Dubarbi girl coming from the back of the field but at the bushes Frankel is 15 lengths clear a horse who is pure class Frankel has destroyed them from halfway an amazing you didn't performance think you were get some horse racing did you? you know what that just sounds like it could be round. like a Monty Python kind of sketch this commentator it? is brilliant yeah he is brilliant and the guardian wrote frankel's brilliance was something that everyone from the diehard fans to the first timers on a corporate jolly <laughs> could appreciate for centuries people have devoted their lives to the breeding and racing of thoroughbreds the dream of creating a freak like frankel and seeing a moment like this is what drives them wow i love yeah. the eloquence of that i'm also thinking about the name frankel i mean i think typically when i think of horse racing i think of these kind of over-the-top elaborate names yeah 
It was very Frankel. simple. Frankel. There's something that's very simple, but was, still odd about it. It was named after a trainer, I think. Oh, okay. I think it was Bobby Frankel he was named after. Um, but moving on, in golf, Darren Clark finally won the major championship that had, had most had assumed would elude him throughout his career. He put it all together over four breezy days at Royal St. George's. It's the thing you, you sort of dream about, isn't it? You know, the fact that I'm three shots ahead, that I'm just off the edge of the green. And it's, it's like... I can really savour this now. I can really, really enjoy this walk. I can't really put it into words. The way I feel about Lynx Golf and everything, to to have fulfilled the dream of winning the Open Championship, you know, just, wow. Oh, wow. You strive towards and strive towards it, and I often thought, it'd be wonderful, what would it be like to be a major champion? And... I fulfilled that dream, but not just a major champion, the Open champion. This is the biggest and best out of all of them. Your name is on that trophy, and nobody can ever take that away from you. This is the oldest, the biggest, and the best. We had Darren in studio actually a few oh, years no ago. Way. Yeah, he. Um, uh, I've actually I've played in a tournament with Darren. Okay, a professional he tournament. He sounds like a really nice guy from that club. Uh, is he? Yeah, he is. Yeah, Not he, that you can he, really he, say otherwise. He but. absolutely is. No, it was really odd. It was odd. I got invited to play in a Minotaur event. I was over there covering it for Dubai Eye, actually, just after I joined Dubai Eye. And David Spencer, who we had on the show last week, had uh, this idea that I should accompany Darren as a marker in the tournament. This isn't a pro-am or anything. This is him playing a tournament round. Okay. And at the time, he's actually had a... He's come back and he's playing really good golf on the seniors tour now. But he was really struggling with his game and it was quite an excruciating experience because here was a guy who was an open champion had won everything in golf he's won world golf championships he'd been in the top five in the world he'd he'd starred in Ryder Cups Mm. and he was playing a MENA tour event a satellite tour with no spectators and a journalist gawping at him aka me playing really average golf and um, he set me a bet on the last hole. He said that uh, if I could break a certain score, then um, he'd give me some cash and he'd buy my dinner for me. So um, I was like, okay, trembling at this. And I needed to make a four up the last, which is a long par four. Anyway, hit my drive perfectly and he starts getting in my, getting in my ear, just kind of chirping away, just talk, because there was water (laughs) all down the right. He's like, ah, there's water over there. There's water. You better watch that. (laughs) And then I got the, uh, the, the approach shot, blocked it a mile into the water. And he just went, that was really disappointing. (laughs) Really, really disappointing. You just choked. You just choked. There's no no other way to describe it. And uh, and that was that. I got him to record a video for my friends explaining how badly I choked. (laughs) And it was really, really surreal. But it was, yeah, Darren um, shot uh, something like pretty average there. He was quite angry with himself. But he's come back and um, he's now earning an awful lot of money playing some very good golf on the Champions Tour as well. Uh, let's move on to talk a bit of tennis before we get to rugby. And we've had a message in saying that the All Blacks finally won their second Rugby World Cup. Yes, they did in 2011. Novak Djokovic that year announced himself as the best player on the planet. And it was in the semi-final of the US Open between Djokovic and Federer that a huge moment in the sort of crossroads in the careers of these guys really kind of came to pass because Federer was 5-3 up in the fifth set. He was serving at 40-15 and then this happened. Oh, my word! 
Where on earth did Djokovic find that? You're going to support me now? <laughs> yes, just what does he have to do? Well, you've done what Federer has done over the years in so many places and done it so well. It's difficult at times to understand why he gets the crowd on his side. That was Djokovic saving a match point, a two match points, in fact, with a blistering forehand winner. Just a complete, he swiped at it and it just, it just like went like a bullet across the court. He saved the next one. He broke Federer. Wow. And then he ended up winning the match and the tournament. And that was the year that he really put the hammer down on Nadal and Federer. He beat Nadal in the Wimbledon and the US Open finals. He beat Federer in the semifinals of the Australian Open and then Andy Murray in the final. And then he beat Federer in the US before going on to beat Rafa. And he, he just announced himself as the best player in the planet in 2011. And he's been there really, injuries aside and, and momentary losses of form aside, he's, he's pretty much been there ever since. Yeah. I mean, how did Federer react in that? Well, he was, he was fuming with himself at the time and he kept a lid on it because he's, uh, he's very composed emotionally, but he was raging. And then mm. it happened again a few years later at Wimbledon where Federer had 40-15 serving for the match, Djokovic, won those points with some great points and ended up turning it around and, and winning the tournament. And that might have a bearing on where they end up with their respective Grand Slam tallies. But just one final one from sport for 2011. It was the All Blacks. It was their second Rugby World Cup. A nail, but not a great match, but a nail-biting match against their old rivals, France, who knocked them out in the previous tournaments in 99 and 2007. And it was actually a fourth-choice fly-half, Stephen Donald. Their others were injured, who proved the difference as New Zealand won 8-7 to begin an era of dominance that would see them reclaim the trophy four years later. And even though South Africa won the Rugby World Cup in 2019, many would still regard the All Blacks as the top side in world rugby, and they just keep churning out unbelievable talent so pretty good year for sport yeah. 2011 great year for sport good year for music a little bit weak on the movies i would say good for quirky stories yeah. so a nice one to finish time capsule indeed off scripts time capsule rating and ranking the years that have shaped us thank you for listening to the time capsule if you've enjoyed this episode please subscribe rate it and please do if you've got a moment give us a review this is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today.